Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age Railway Track and Structures and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Vantuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. This is part of our continuing series with the Commuter Rail Coalition. And thank you very much, uh, Kellyanne Gallagher, for, uh, for facilitating this, uh, this podcast here. Our, uh, our guests are the Vice Chair of the Commuter Rail Coalition and the President of the, the South Shore, or the Northern Indiana Commuter Transportation District, Mike Noland and John Klein of Klein Strategic Consulting. Well, welcome. Uh, we are going to address a, uh, a really hot topic, and that is liability insurance, excess liability insurance that's become a real sticking point for, uh, for, for passenger rail, commuter rail in, in particular. And uh, we've touched upon this in, in uh, uh, previous uh, discussions as part of this series. Um, so, uh, John, let's, uh, let's start with you. Uh, if you can give us an overview of how much liability insurance, uh, commuter railroads typically carry, uh, set by, I think there's a, there's a federal mandate or federal cap. Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, I think it's safe to say that nearly all of the, uh, commuter railroads in the country currently carry up to that federal liability cap uh, that is just shy of $323 million. Um, and um, as you may recall, the, the cap is, is basically sets the limit of exposure that any commuter rail agency would be exposed to in the event of, uh, of any occurrence. And, um, uh, and so uh, it doesn't require that commuter rail agencies purchase that amount. Um, but in effect, because of contractual relationships that commuter rail agencies have uh, either with the class ones uh, who, uh, uh, who we have to access their, their service territory, so there are contractual arrangements made with them, um, or uh, more recently, uh, now that we have positive train control and we contract with firms who uh, manage, oversee, develop the software uh, and the licensure agreements that are had with those uh, organizations require that the commuter rail agencies carry uh, insurance up to the federal cap. So, so again, even though it's not a mandate that we carry up to that level, uh, because, of those, uh, because of those relationships with third parties, uh, virtually all commuter railroads carry up to that amount. And uh, the amount, which, as you said, is currently $323 million, that is adjusted from time to time by Congress based on what? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, it, it, under current law, uh, it's a fairly straightforward provision that every five years, the Department of Transportation is charged with reviewing uh, the, in effect, the consumer price index, taking the consumer price index and applying it to uh, the previous cap. And uh, as we know, the consumer price index always goes up <laughs> and, and probably always will. And uh, so just recently, in fact, uh, the five-year period expired. Uh, the department uh, began looking at the issue at the very end of the calendar year 2020. And shortly after the new year, 
they announced that they would be increasing it. The new number, as I mentioned, is just, just shy of $323 million. And, um, uh, and so it's, it's a fairly straightforward provision. I will, I will say this, uh, it has a very short fuse on it that, that we, we have a problem with uh, and that we're gonna try to change legislatively. The, the legislation or the, the current provision law says that, after, uh, that there's a 30 day period uh, after the announcement of the new uh, amount. So once the Secretary of Transportation announced the new, the new $323 million, we only had 30 days to come into compliance. And unfortunately, there were no provisions in the law that would have allowed the Secretary to extend that period. And it, it is problematic because, uh, you know, if it was just uh, uh, Mike's property or one or two properties going out and seeking this additional coverage that uh, that resulted from the cap going up, the insurance industry could could easily digest that. Here you had more than 30 commuter rail agencies all hitting the marketplace at the same time, looking for this additional coverage. And it really strained things. We really were biting our fingernails and were fearful that some properties were not going to be able to secure coverage in time. Just just because of the logistics of it. Uh, fortunately, that did not happen. Uh, but what it did is it shined a pretty bright light on the fact that we need a longer transition period at a minimum. Uh, we, need, we need to re-examine the whole idea of, uh, of this thing being reviewed every five years and, and automatically adjusted. Um, but also important in that is that there has to be sufficient time to come into compliance. So, Mike, that was touch and go for uh, for a while there. Thirty days is not a whole lot of time, uh, if, if you think about it. Well, the, the com compounding the issue is that the number of insurers that provide this coverage in the excess insurance market has dramatically contracted over the last five years. So, not only do you have a very short period of time to go to market to, to get this extra coverage in a market that's extremely difficult to place coverage, but you have fewer and fewer and fewer carriers already uh, that you're going to be able to go to to try to seek this coverage all at the same time. So it, it really did compound the issue for all of us. Fortunately, we were able to get the coverage you know, it is really, it's the, it, given the fact that it's the last layer of coverage, it's the least amount that's likely to be exposed. Um, usually you think of the first dollar coverages are the ones that are exposed in any kind of accident. Uh, but still, it, it posed a challenge for us at a time when it's already difficult to place this coverage in the first place. And this is coverage in excess of $50 million? Well, we all have various points where we self-insure. A lot of people think about that as their deductible, if you would, you know, from a car standpoint, buying a car insurance, you got your deductible. We self-insure a fair amount. And most properties self-insure anywhere between $3 million and maybe $15 million. We don't have a lot of difficulty buying insurance up to the $50 million level. There's even a few domestic insurance companies that might be willing to write that coverage for commuter rail. Once you get above 50 million, almost exclusively 
The only place to buy that coverage is, is for our foreign markets, Bermuda or London or Dublin. And so there's no domestic carriers that are involved. Every dollar is going offshore to brokers and insurance carriers, often Great Britain or Bermuda. And there's, there are very, very few of them left. At one point in time, there was close to a billion dollars in capacity in this market to, to write excess rail coverage. It's down to less than $400 million today. And we're all competing for that same reduced amount of coverage. So what, why is that? Why has the, the market, in terms of the number of carriers available, contracted by more than 50%? What, what, what are the factors there? Sure. A lot of times, you, you know, when you, when you hear somebody complain that their insurance premium is going up or they're having difficulty getting coverage, it's because they've had claims. They, 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 they haven't been operating safely and they're going to their insurance carrier right and left to, to get coverage. As you know, that's not the case in our industry. We're actually at a point in time where we're safer than we've ever been before, and we already were safe. We're probably one of the most safe, safest modes of, if not the safest, public transportation modes, commuter rail. Um, and then you overlay positive train control on that, and we should be in a market where the insurance companies are coming to us and, and, and being aggressive in presenting their, their coverage to us. It's, it's not a matter of the commuter rail industry having uncontained uh, losses. It's a matter of floods, hurricanes, fires, large verdicts. Um, all, there's, it's just everything that's come into play at once. So you got climate change issues. You're seeing excess claims um, that, that the insurance carriers might have seen once in every 10 years are happening once every year. So that excess market um, is, is being um, utilized for all kinds of different industries, making it more and more difficult for all of us to get coverage. Plus low interest rates make it less uh, enticing for those with capital to invest in, um, in uh, insurance companies. Uh, and so uh, they're going to look for other places to put their capital. It's going to raise them, uh, uh, give them a better uh, return on, on their investment. So it's, if you will, it's a perfect storm other than the fact that we're, we're, we're not, we're not contributing to right now to any of those, um, any of those, those loss histories that are driving up the price. Well, when you say perfect storm, uh, yes, literally in some cases it, it is a storm. So, um, so John, what we're talking about here, as we all know, uh, we as an industry do operate safely. We're talking about uh, factors that are really beyond our, our control. Uh, a lot of them call them acts of God. How do you get around that? Yeah, it, it, it does pre uh, present a perplexing problem. And, uh, you know, the, the signs of the marketplace uh, firming up started in uh, in 2018 and, and really gained momentum in 2019. And as Mike said, you know, we were, you, you know, the industry was witnessing large uh, payouts on, on losses, some related to, to climate change uh, issues, wildfires and hurricanes and the like, uh, other things to just uh, events uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, shooting in Las Vegas, for example, at the MGM Grand resulted in a significant payout uh, for the insurer there as well. So, uh, so things that were just happening 
Um, and uh, as Mike also mentioned, combined with, uh, with low interest rates, it, it was a bad combination for the, for the excess liability insurers to have low returns and growing or significantly growing risk. And so they were experiencing losses and making moves to uh, either exit the marketplace completely. And we saw some longtime insurers leave the market completely, uh, or they were just reducing their capacity. And of course, that put a lot of downward pressure, um, you know, increasing premiums for commuter rail agencies and even the risk of not being able to secure all of their coverages. We had a number of uh, commuter rail properties came perilously close uh, to uh, when they went out for bids uh, to renew their policies, not being able to secure enough coverage. It's not the sort of issue where you can, uh, where you can go to a different marketplace. It's a, it's a world marketplace and um, it, it is what it is. And you have to uh, work within the, within the constraints of, of what you've got or what you don't have. And in this case, what we don't have is capacity. So, um, you know, we, we really, as an industry, had to step back and take a look at what options were available to us. Uh, and through leadership from Mike and some, some of the other commuter rail CEOs uh, working in concert with APTA, uh, they started to examine what potential options might be available. Um, and, and the options spanned, you know, what was available to us in the private sector? What, what could we do within the confines of the uh, insurance marketplace? And what options would be available to us um, for a federal solution, a state or a federal solution, bringing the, bringing the government in uh, to help out? And, um, and so there, I will say that there's not a lot of options, um, but, uh, but it really boiled down to one, uh, we could create an industry pool, uh, have all passenger railroads uh, participate in a pool. You'd create, in effect, a, a non-for-profit uh, company that would collect premiums and would pay out uh, you know, claims uh, over time. And, and hopefully over time, you would build up reserves and be self-sustaining. Um, that would take you out of the realm of having to deal with uh, any private insurers. Um, the other option and the one that we uh, moved toward was to establish a federal program. Uh, you know, and there is, there is a, a bit of history with the federal government uh, getting into the, into the insurance marketplace. Um, you know, the insurance marketplace, not just in this sector, but in other sectors, has a history of hardening and softening. Uh, there are times, for example, post 9-11, where terrorism risk insurance was effectively unavailable. Uh, insurers, uh, you know, were, were unsure what the, what the future of the world looked like and would there be acts of terrorism <clears throat> going on constantly. And so they backed out of that market literally overnight. The federal government in the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act effectively stepped into that marketplace and provided, became a became a reinsurer. It was a backstop for all these insurance companies so that they would continue to offer terrorism risk insurance. So things like the airlines could continue to fly because they were faced with shutting down. Um, you also see uh, the federal government playing a role in the insurance, the excess insurance for nuclear power plants. Again, it's recognition that losses of an, at a nuclear power plant could be significant. 
and that uh, securing coverages was something that was really outside the, the realm of what the private market insurers could cover. So based on, based on looking at that, we came up with, a, uh, with an approach um, and that we thought was the best one, which was to have the uh, federal government effectively become the insurer commuter rail agencies would pay uh, premiums to the federal government. And, um, and the hope is, is that this would be, you know, not necessarily a permanent solution. The hope is, is that the private insurance market someday will, will soften up again and there'll be more stability and more predictability and, uh, and that they would offer enough capacity and that we would least have that as an option to go back to. But until such time as that occurs, and, and we really believe that that's not going to occur for a number of years, um, we really needed something that was more reliable. So uh, this came about as the result of uh, an APTA task force that uh, both uh, you and Mike uh, were, were involved in. Yeah, that's right. Um, this has been a, a topic, certainly the CRC has been addressing it for a couple of years. It's also been discussed on the commuter rail committee of APTA. And we, you know, on, from the APTA side, as John mentioned, um, we agreed that we needed to uh, uh, hire a consulting firm to study the issue, come up with recommendations. Uh, and, and then once we centered on what the best approach was, which is really a legislative approach, um, draft legislation that we now have and that we're now advocating for uh, for some for congressional help. The bottom line here is that it's like I, I make it simple. If if we don't have this coverage, we don't operate. And and this 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 uh, issue has been um, worsening over the last three to four years. It's it's so it's progressively getting worse, and we're at the point where. Uh, John mentioned some of us couldn't place all of our coverage last year. We barely made it, and there isn't certainty that we're going to that it's going to get better and that it could get worse. And absent the assurances that we get we can get this coverage, um, it's we could receive a letter. I, I received a letter last week from PTC 220, one of the uh, software providers for my PTC system, wanting to know did I did I procure the extra a layer of coverage that John just mentioned that we had to provide this past March. Uh, I'm obligated to provide that coverage. If I don't, they don't have to sell me their, 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 their software license, and then I can't operate with PTC. And if I don't have PTC, I'm, I'm likely not, long-term, I'm not operating. We're all in that boat. We're at the point now where we need a solution. We need to have the coverage. And that's why we're now communicating that message to Congress via the legislative approach. So there's a lot at stake here. Uh, and uh, so the commuter rail coalition and other stakeholders now you're, so you're, you're focusing on, on the uh, legislature right now. And as we know, there's a lot in play now. There's the, the surface transportation reauthorization. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, bills floating out there. There's, there's uh, uh, the president's infrastructure bill. Right. Uh, there's, there's, uh, competing bills, uh, counter proposals. So there's, uh, uh, it, it must be a, uh, a pretty complicated web to, uh, to try, to try to pick your way through. But, uh, uh, what, what's your general feeling on, uh, Congress's, uh, receptivity to this idea? 
Uh, obviously, they have to take this very seriously. Yeah, I think Kellyanne's done a great job of, of helping us message this issue, which is not an easy issue to communicate. So I, I think we've, we've communicated very well to our friends at the FTA and to the FRA and to the Department of Transportation, to Secretary Buttigieg's staff. They're aware of this issue. Um, we have been um, meeting with um, various uh, committees of jurisdiction in the Senate and the House we, we have um, been working with our own congressional delegations to educate them on the issue. That's the first step in this process. So that, that so that I think that there's a there's a pretty good understanding uh, by by, by uh, the people that need to be aware of this issue, what's out there. And now we need then we need to give them the tool, uh, the ask, uh, and and that's the form of the legislation. So. Uh, it, it, we're a long way from from uh, the finish line here, but I think I think we've been working on the building blocks to educate and, and then provide a solution for, for the past couple of years. Concurrent to APTA's uh, effort to develop legislative language, we felt you know having had these conversations for so many months, you can see people's eyes glaze over when you say the words liability insurance. And it's just not a sexy topic, but it is a crucial topic to address for the commuter railroads. So what we did was um, identified some of the, the true experts in um, the agencies and commissioned a white paper. And it's written in plain English and it just lays out what liability insurance is with the market, you know, the history of the marketplace and what brought us to where we are where we are now and it's a very accessible very easy to read document and um it just leaves you with a a, a comprehension of what our crisis is and why it's a crisis obviously kellyanne this this paper is very important and we will hyperlink it uh to this to this podcast you i guarantee you that excellent thanks bill you know, we have had, um, as Mike said, meetings, uh, the virtual meetings with the committees of jurisdiction, um, trying to identify the path forward. Um, certainly we've met with banking, we've met with House TNI uh, twice now, just trying to figure out what path the legislation might take so that we can put our best foot forward on making this thing a priority in this Congress. Well, I would think, uh, uh, Mike, as, as you said, if you cannot secure this insurance, you can't operate. That's right. got to that's got to hit home with with any, anybody who has any common sense <laughs> from from my perspective. You know, you, you can't run the trains. What are you going to do? You know, well, and, that, and, that's, and that's, that's the issue. And, and so, you know, the, we want to make sure that we've educated and informed um, our, our elected officials of this issue so that they, they're not surprised and they're not in a position where uh, all of a sudden we shut down and, and they were asked, why didn't you tell anybody? So I think, we, you know, we've, we've been, we, what we've been trying to do is, like I said, educate the, the, the Congress and, and our, um, our Department of Transportation friends about the issue. Uh, and it, again, it's, as Kellyanne said, it's not a sexy issue. 
uh, talking insurance makes people eyes glow over, go glass over, but it is an issue that could prevent us from operating. It's that it's like if you don't have car insurance, Bill, you're not allowed to drive your car, and and that's that's as simple as it gets. Um, you know, you know, not to mention that that insurance is triple the price it was a couple of years ago, and you're the safest driver on the road. Um, you still you can't even buy it; they don't want to sell it to you. Um, and 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 so when all of us who operate our, our, our own properties look at that kind of issue that could shut us down, that's why it's risen to the level of of I'll call it a crisis where we need to propose. An extraordinary solution is to come to the federal government and say, we need your help here. Uh, we've tried self-help. That isn't working. And, and we're at risk of not being able to run and provide an essential service. So um, before, we get, before one of us or more of us gets into the position where we don't have the coverage and we're not allowed to operate, we want to get this solved. So, John, uh, let's let's help our uh, our listeners here. How can they get involved? Who are the key people on the Hill, uh, whether they're uh, staff people or the, the legislators themselves? Who are the key people on the Hill who should be hearing this message? It's the traditional committees of jurisdiction. So in the House, uh, the uh, House Transportation Infrastructure Committee, chaired by Peter DeFazio, uh, the railroad subcommittee by uh, Don Payne from New Jersey, um, people we've, we've all spoken with. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, over on the Senate side, the Committee of Jurisdiction is the Banking Committee. Uh, there's numerous, there are numerous members on the Banking Committee who have commuter rail uh, agencies in their home states. Uh, uh, Mr. Menendez from New Jersey, for example, Mr. Warner from Virginia. It's not that we lack, uh, let's say, the, the political connection, um, but it's, it's a challenging issue. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't come to this conclusion lightly. We, didn't, we started out really not thinking that we were going to pursue a federal solution. We really thought that we could put together uh, an industry-wide pool. Uh, and, and unfortunately, the logistics of putting that together became, you know, really, really quite difficult and something that we feared uh, we would be putting it together and the marketplace would continue to fall away underneath our feet. So the urgency of the, of the problem is what drove us to the federal government. Fortunately, we have the benefit of the fact that Congress is, is focused on infrastructure issues right now. Um, unfortunately, uh, this, is, this isn't what they had in mind when they were thinking about infrastructure. It's, uh, it's uh, as Mike said, it's, it's not a sexy issue. It's not the sort of thing that uh, comes to mind. However, it has all of the capability of really uh, disabling a major part of the transportation infrastructure. And uh, so, um, you know, we are in that education phase of, of sitting down and, and explaining this to staff and running through, you know, it's, it's, a, it's such a unique uh, circumstance and explaining to them, uh, you know, why a private market wouldn't want to take our money to provide coverage for a incredibly safe industry. It just, uh, it defies logic. And, uh, and their job, of course, is to 
chase all the shadows down and try to understand why this market is not working correctly. And uh, so that's that's a big part of what we're doing is is really trying to provide that education. Uh, and I think it's it's compound it's compounded by the fact that the insurance industry is not what I would call the most open industry. So you know after this after we have this podcast, if you said you know I'm going to go I'm going to go double check some of these facts that uh, John and Mike were throwing out today. I'm going to call up some of the insurers. I'm going to call up some of the agents. Uh, I guarantee you that none of them would speak with you because uh, uh, these are issues that they don't make public. They they don't reveal. Uh, their methodologies to the public. They don't reveal them to us. So it's, um, it's a bit of a black box that they operate in. And so uh, that, that also compounds uh, our problem of making this a somewhat understandable issue. And I, well, let me add to this, this too, Bill. Um, we're not asking to have the federal government provide this at no cost. We're willing to pay the reasonable uh, levels of premium uh, that the, if you go back to say use 2018 or 2019 as the date you set for what um, would be a reasonable dollar amount based upon um, uh, millions of dollars worth of coverage. And we're also willing to provide coverage up to the $50 million layer where 99% of the, any loss history occurs. So it's, it's really, it's this excess risk that um, needs to be addressed, that we're willing to pay a premium on, and that we can't find people to give our money to, to provide that premium. And those that are available are your Lloyds of London. So, um, you know, God, God save the queen. Uh, we're, we're sending our, our money overshore off seas. It's not buy America here because there's no way to buy America. So, um, you know, we're, we're willing to do to do our part here. And, and we really think that, um, you know, we, we are safe. We're actually, you know, the federal government just asked us to and we invested in positive train control. So we're safer than we've ever been. Yet we're in a position where we can't buy access insurance coverage to ensure against the kind of risks that PTC was put in place to avoid. Mike, as an operator, uh, service provider, do you think it would be useful to maybe get your customers involved, uh, advocacy groups, uh, you know, rider advocates, uh, you know, educate them in some understandable way and say, hey, look, folks, you know, this service, your service that you depend upon every day to get to work or wherever you're going is in jeopardy here. Can you help us? Uh, well, absolutely, Bill. And that's why we're doing the podcast with you today. So, okay. so the, the, all of you rail <laughs> advocacy groups out there that are listening to this podcast, write your congressman, write your senator. Um, we, yes, we'll, we will, we, we're trying to get the message out as effectively as we can. Um, you know, I guarantee you that if one of us or more of us gets shut down because we don't have the coverage, it'll become front and center especially to those commuters whose train doesn't show up that day because the, the, the operator couldn't provide service. And the first question they're going to ask is, well, how come you didn't do anything? Why didn't you tell us? So abs absolutely, we, we'll, we'll take all the help we can get and to the extent that we can get our, our constituencies, our individual uh, constituencies to, to help. Absolutely. Uh, this, we need a lot of voices on this. And as we know, politicians uh, vote uh, 
based on their what their constituency wants. And if their constituents are commuter rail riders and, and the commuter rail riders uh, are, are saying, you need to do something about this, uh, that hopefully will, will increase the odds. <clears throat> Absolutely. I think, I think you're right. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not an easy issue to explain to people. And again, it, it comes across as being totally illogical when you, when you say it out loud. Um, but, you know, I, I think people do understand that, uh, that this is a uh, vexing problem that we face, that there are few alternatives available and the best alternative would appear to be a federal solution. And it's not a giveaway program. It's not a freebie. Um, you know, we're not trying to latch on to the federal government and offload on them a liability or a responsibility that we would otherwise assume. Uh, so I think, I think it, it, it has those features about it that make it attractive. And it's the sort of thing that I, our hope is, is that as people become aware of it, and like you said, you know, members of Congress react to their constituents. And if they understand that there's a threat uh, to their service, particularly at a time when cities are now just recovering from the pandemic and, and mass transit and particularly commuter rail operations are going to be absolutely critical to that recovery. Uh, you really don't want to uh, take a chance with this issue. The bill is called the Commuter Rail Insurance Act. It's, it's all fairly straightforward um, and understandable. And um, yeah, I think that covers it. All right. So our, our listeners need to get behind the Commuter Rail Insurance Act and get this done. With that, uh, John Klein and Mike Noland and Kellyanne Gallagher, the Commuter Rail Coalition, uh, we, we thank you for, for joining us and uh, we will circle back on this. We'll, we'll stay on top of it and uh, hopefully we'll be able to report back to you, our listeners, that, uh, that this is no longer an issue. Thanks very much and uh, have a safe day.